Good morning, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that you love us. God, we thank you uh, for your kingdom. We thank you that in your kingdom, things are different. In your kingdom, death does not uh, hold the ultimate answer to what's going to happen to us. We thank you that in your kingdom, sin does not overcome, doesn't rule, and doesn't own us. We thank you that in your kingdom, there's redemption, and there's forgiveness, and there's restoration, and there's freedom, and there's hope, and there's joy. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, your kingdom, and we thank you uh, for the way that you've called us into it, uh, that you've made us your sons and daughters. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, all the other places here in this town that claim you as Lord. And, Lord, we know that uh, your son prayed that we would be unified, that we would be people who have the same message and have the same heart. And so with all others who claim you uh, as their father and Jesus as Lord, Lord, we celebrate and we ask that you would move mightily through your Holy Spirit, through all the people in this town, that we would bring others to Christ and that we would be people uh, of faith and people of grace and of joy. Lord, in particular, we ask that you be with Zion Lutheran Church today with the worship service that they are having, that they will proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done, and that many people will hear that message and come to belong to you through that. I ask that you be with Caleb Williams, who is new here to town, and Lord, that this would be a place that welcomes him as he goes into this field, uh, and that the harvest would be plentiful because of the words that he says, and that many people would come to Christ through the work of Zion Lutheran Church, and Lord, we pray that for ourselves as well. Let us be people of the King in everything that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, I want to talk to you for a minute about odd conversations. I've had a bunch in my life. A lot of odd conversations. One of the first ones was what, uh, that I had with my wife. Uh, I will never forget uh, seeing my wife and kind of being introduced to her. And then uh, calling her for the first time when I was in college. And uh, I had in my head, she's not going to know who I am. So I had all these connections that I was going to make to make sure she understood. She, see, she had been with her friends and walked past our house the day before. And I had said hi, and she had said hi, and then I said hi. But anyway, um, I remember calling her and saying to her on the phone, uh, Melissa, hey, this is Scott Warner. She goes, yeah. And I go, uh, I'm the one that you saw yesterday when you walked by the house. And she goes, yeah. And I said, I'm actually in this class that you have. And she goes, yeah. And I go, I'm Susie Warner's brother. And she goes, I know who you are. <laughs> That's just one odd conversation. I've been a part of a lot of them. Uh, as a minister, I found myself in a lot of conversations that I didn't expect to be there, talking about things that I didn't expect, and I've seen God move in amazing ways through that. One of the most interesting things is it seems that it happens when I'm outside my routine more than anything. Like, I've had great conversations, don't get me wrong, and powerful conversations about God with, with people inside the church building, but some of the most powerful conversations that I've had have been in Peru when I went and visited an orphanage and talked to some people out there that were stuck in, in poverty. Uh, that I've had in prison, not in prison, in a prison ministry. Let me shift that so that you know. I was in the prison. I wasn't in the prison. We were in the prison for a prison ministry and talking to people that have been incarcerated and what God's doing in their life and been a part of some amazing conversations there. Uh, I, I had a, a home that I used to work with, which is a halfway house for men that are coming off out of homelessness and addiction and out of jail. And I had some of the most amazing conversations there. 
Things where you could just see God's moving and there's something happening. And it seems like that happens a lot when we have these conversations outside the normal routine. So we've been in John. If you're new with us, we're going through the book of John. This is, this is old John's uh, recollection and writing of what he saw that Jesus did. And John is trying to get us to understand more than what Jesus did and what Jesus said. He said, I want you to know what Jesus was like. And I want you to understand what mattered to him. And so one of the things that happens in John is it's a little different. The order's a little different. He's not interested in chrono- chronological order. And, and not only that, but there's, a, there's some conversations that happen in John you won't find anywhere else. They're not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a conversation that he has with Nicodemus that we went through a few weeks ago. It's an odd conversation at night with a teacher of teachers who came to talk to Jesus in this strange, strange conversation in the middle of the night where this this leader in the church came to talk to him where other people wouldn't see. And then we have another conversation today. It's one of the longest conversations, maybe the longest conversation that Jesus ever had with anybody that's recorded. Usually when we see Jesus interacting with people, it's, it's kind of a question and an answer, but this is a longer conversation. And it happens with the most unexpected people. And it happens in the most unexpected place. And it happens in the most unexpected way. And it has the most unexpected outcome. It's Jesus stepping outside his routine and then something happening at a well in Samaria in the middle of the day with a woman who's a Samaritan. So if you would, I'd like for you to listen to the stories as being read and the scriptures as we have them uh, read today. And uh, remember, this is all very unexpected place for this conversation to happen. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Go, call your husband and come here. I have no husband. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thank you for that. The word of the Lord. Uh, this is a unique conversation. And it's with unexpected people in an unexpected way. Uh, you know, you have this conversation with Nicodemus, like I said, in the middle of the night, and no one would expect it that. That's weird. You got a rabbi meeting another rabbi who really kind of would outrank him in uh, the, the, the hierarchy of the church, and Jesus is having that conversation. And then he finds himself in the middle of Samaria, having a conversation with a woman in the middle of the day. And there is so much about that that is so unusual. It's out of routine. It's not the normal way. The thing about Jesus that I love is that Jesus makes sure he goes out of the routine. He goes out of his way. He makes sure that there's uh, times where he steps out of what's comfortable, where he steps out of what's normal, where he steps out of where most people would be. And from that, these amazing things occur. It's like Jesus seeks out these opportunities in these ways that aren't normally what you would see. Here's the thing. We don't normally do that. We live in a culture that really kind of pushes us to comfort. If you found a spot, we kind of like homeostasis. We like finding the place of uh, least resistance. We like finding the place of most comfort. I know I've got my chair in my living room that fits me just right. And being able to lean back in there and put my feet up, uh, that feels great to me. But the problem is we can do that in a lot of ways and in including our spiritual life. We can get comfortable and we seek the past, the path of least resistance in our, in our spiritual life as well as our physical life. But the thing about us is, and I know this from, from talking to you and others who believe, we also want to see something amazing. We have this desire to see God do something remarkable. I want to see God at work. I want to see him do something powerful. I want to see him move. Most of you probably have stories where if I were to ask you, you'd be able to go back and go, oh, I saw the Lord moving powerfully in this way. And most of the time, it would be when you were out of your normal routine. We have this desire to see God really do something, but at the same time, we have this desire for comfort and to be comfortable in our lives. And it really makes us reflect on what's worth stepping out of your routine for. What's worth being uncomfortable for? What's worth you doing something different than you normally do? And in our world, that is 
oftentimes not much that we're willing to do that for. That's why I want us to look at Jesus today in this story, this conversation where he finds himself this unique place in the well in the middle of Samaria with this woman. So let's talk about this story a little bit. One of the scriptures that it talks about in there is it says Jesus was going from Judea and he was going to Galilee. And one of the things about uh, this travel from Judea to Galilee is that you need to understand it, it says he had to go through Samaria. Well, that's a little misleading. Uh, if you look at that as the scripture that says Jesus had to go that way, there was no other way to go, that's not true. As a matter of fact, it was often that people would go from the southern part of Judea and they would go to this northern spot up here in Galilee and in between was Samaria. And most Jews were willing to make sure that they would go out through another countryside and then back in so they didn't ever have to go to Samaria. That was the point. Now, it's the most direct route, but that doesn't mean it's the best. For instance, if you were going from San Antonio to Dallas, the most direct route is I-35. That doesn't make it the easiest. That doesn't make it the best. That's oftentimes the most messy. It's the most dangerous one. It's one that can be extremely difficult. There's a lot of complications that way if you were to go that way. You can say it's the most direct route, but sometimes it's just not worth the trouble of getting on that road and doing that. And you need to know that this comes from a place that's not a normal feud. This is not just Texans and Oklahomans fussing with each other. Okay, this is a lot more than that. The issue that the Jews had with the Samaritans goes back over 500 years. A feud that lasts that long. You need to understand, so there was a time where all these people were together and they were God's people, and then these Assyrians came in. And what they did was they took some people from the, the north and they took them away. And what they wanted to do was go, we're gonna, we've conquered you, now we're going to take you, we're going to take you back to our homeland, and we're going to learn from you, and we're going to teach you about us, and you will be uh, melded into our culture at that time. And then they left some people in the south, but what they did was they moved some enemies in there. So they repatriated that place with some of their enemies. And as those people came in, one of the things that happened was they brought their own uh, gods, and they brought their own religion, and then things began to meld, and then they began to marry one another, and there was uh, marriages between the Assyrians and what was the, the, the southern parts of God's people, the Samaritans at the time. And through that, there was this feeling of who really was faithful? Who really had the truth on their side? Who responded well? Well, you were taken away, and you lived in that city, and you ate their food, and you sang their songs, and you became a part of what they are. And at the same time, they moved people over here, and in a lot of ways, we were enveloped in what that was. Who's right? Who's got the truth? And so in a lot of ways, the Jews looked at the Samaritans and said, you're kind of a mixed breed because you married with them, and you weren't supposed to do that. And then you, you, you were willing to uh, incorporate some of their gods and some of their, uh, their, some of their sacraments that they did. And, and so there was, this, there was this fear between each other, and it, it turned into this hatred between each other. And you need to know it wasn't just 500 years old. It was still ramped up quite a bit. As a matter of fact, just like 100 years before Jesus... One of the highest, the Jewish high priests had gathered an army together, went into Samaria, and destroyed their temple, wiped it out. A high priest grabbing an army and wiping it out. And then in the lifetime, it seems, it appears that during the lifetime of Jesus, there were actually some Samaritans who went and snuck in undercover into the temple in Jerusalem because they wouldn't have been allowed in there if people had known they were Samaritans. They kind of covered themselves up and went in, and they scattered the bones of dead men all over the place. 
And you need to understand, for Jewish people who were not allowed to be unclean and can't touch the dead, that was a huge offense. So this is still going on, and it's harsh, and they're cruel to one another. And in the midst of this is where this conversation happens. So yeah, it would have been more direct to go through Samaria, but it's not easier. It's more messy, and it's harder. This has racism attached to it and who you are. This has theological implications attached to it. This is what you believe. We don't like each other in that way. It's complicated politically, religiously, personally. And then you have, even in this story, Jesus saying, you need to know salvation comes from the Jews. I mean, you look at that itself and you go, wow, there is a problem between these people and the way that they look each other, look at each other. So Jews would often, if they did have to go through Samaria, they would hug the western side next to the shore so they didn't have to be in the middle of it. And Jesus goes right through the middle of Samaria and he stops right there in the center and he's at a well in the middle of the day. And it's not a rabbi's routine to end up talking to a Samaritan woman alone in the middle of the day. It violates all kinds of cultural norms. So what's worth all this trouble? What's worth taking Jesus and a rabbi like this out of his way to land at that place in the middle of the day talking to that woman? And the answer is her. He's there for her. That's what makes Jesus who he is. And that's what makes him special. And that's what makes us want to be like him is that he goes out of his way for people. For people that you normally wouldn't think. Some things are worth going out of your way for. And for Jesus, it was people who needed him. So there's this woman at the well. And let's talk about her for a minute, because I think we may have some misconceptions about what she was like and the way that we've treated her in this story. You need to know, she has a routine too. Her routine is to come in the middle of the day. That probably wasn't always her routine, and it wasn't the routine that she wanted. Normally, and probably in the past, her routine would have been to come in the morning. But now she comes at noon. It's not the easiest way to get water. It's going to be hotter. There's nobody there to help you, to pull the bucket up and down, to help you carry it. There's not other people there for community. But instead, that's when she goes. You need to know it's harder on her because now she spends the whole morning with yesterday's water. She has to make sure that it's enough before she comes at noon. It's not the easiest time to come, but for her, it's less messy. It's less complicated for most people, they come in the morning because it's cooler, and there are other people there, and you need to know the gathering at the well was kind of the, the water cooler talk. That's where we'd find out what's going on with each other. You would come, and you would bring your kids, and there would be community, and you would start the day off with your peers and spending some time with other people that were like you, reminding yourself that you are a community, and there are other people there to help you with your water and to help carry your water, and she doesn't have any of that. It would be more convenient to come in the morning, but it's much more complicated there's judgmental looks. There's gossip. There's rejection being ignored. And we often look at her and we go, well, she was there in the middle of the day, and you find out a little bit about her. She's been married five times, and now she's living with someone who's not her husband. And you think she's there because of her moral failings. She is there in this spot of outcast and loneliness because of what she's done. Jesus even says that, right? You're right. You're right. You've had five husbands. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the person you're living with right now is not your husband. And we look at that and we think that that's a condemnation from Jesus. That he's pointing out her moral failures. And I think we may have missed the point in this. Let me tell you a couple of things with this. One is during that time and in that culture, a woman could not just divorce a man. It was illegal. 
he had to give her a certificate of divorce. She could not give one to him. So she's been put away five times. And at the same time, you need to understand it's not just because maybe she had moral failings, like we can look at her and go, well, maybe she was an adulteress or something. You need to know, adultery inside of marriage at that time, she would have been stoned by then. If that was her way of doing things, that's, that's not who she was. Most likely, she had been abandoned through divorce or maybe through death as a widow multiple times. And so I think when Jesus is saying, I know that you've had five husbands and the person you're living with now is not your husband, I don't think that was an accusation of sin. I think that was Jesus' recognition of her hurt and her abandonment. It's not about her failings. So you don't just end up in the day alone just because maybe you've sinned. We don't just hide our sin from people. We hide our hurt from people too. We hide our damage from folks. We don't want people to know how we've been damaged and how we've been hurt. There's a shame even that comes from that. I had a conversation this week with a friend and was hearing him tell a story of a rough childhood where he grew up and not having parents around that really took care of him, but instead growing up in this place of neglect. And so he didn't have people watching out for him when he was a young person. And he said, one of the things that we would do is when I was young, we, we would all meet. We would sneak out at night, and we would meet and go get into some mischief or do some things. And he says, as I would meet up with my friends, they'd all talk about, well, I had to sneak out. I had to do this. I snuck through the window so my mom wouldn't find out. And I did this so that my dad wouldn't see me. And he goes, I didn't have to sneak out at all. I could just walk out the front because there was nobody there to stop me. There was nobody there who cared if I left. But I lied. When I would meet with them, I'd go, yeah, I, I had to sneak out too. I, I waited till it was safe, and maybe I went through the window or I went out the back. He would lie about that. And you think to yourself, why would a young person need to lie about that? It's not his fault. He's the kid. They're the parents. This is not something that he did wrong. But he was hiding it, and he was hiding who he was because he didn't want people to know there was nobody there to watch for me. There's nobody there who cared for me to make sure that I was safe. You're talking about sneaking out from the people that are there to give you comfort and care and to watch over you. I don't have that, and I don't want you to know I don't have that. Shame comes in many different forms. It wasn't his fault, but at the same time, he was hiding from it. And he wanted to make sure that people didn't know. We hide our hurt and we hide our wounds just like we hide our sin so much. And then sometimes people end up in this place of outcast, and they end up in this place where they're alone, and it's not because of what they've done. It's because of what's been done to them, because of the hurt that they have. You get abandoned enough, you get thrown away enough, and you start to believe that it's because I'm not worth sticking around for. You start to believe all kinds of lies. If people keep leaving me, maybe it's because I'm not worth loving I can't imagine all the lies that this woman would have believed at this time. For her to sit there in the middle of the day, all of the things that aren't true that she's come to believe and she's come to accept, all of these difficult things, and most of it coming from the hurt that's been done to her. It's easy to believe those lies when the evidence that that your life and that this world has given you over and over again seems to back it up. You know, maybe she can't bring herself to commit for a sixth time to somebody. 
The idea of losing that person would be too much pain, and I just can't do it. Maybe she's just trying to survive. That's why she ends up there alone. We don't just hide our sin from others. We hide our hurt, too. We all do this. When we've been hurt by parents from what they said and when we were growing up that were supposed to treat us in a certain way and they didn't, we hide that. When we've been abandoned by partners or spouses, loved ones through neglect or even death, the feeling of abandonment we can have from those who have passed on and left us, those who are afflicted by tragedy with our kids or we have by illness that we seem to have over and over and over again. You feel like you're always under attack, and so we begin to hide those things. Maybe she, come, maybe she came in the afternoon now, but it was possible she came in the morning before for a while. But after a lot of times of being there and desperately hoping that she would become part of the community, maybe at the same time hoping somebody would notice me and also being afraid somebody would notice me, and that they would find out who I was or what had happened to me, it just became too hard that somebody would see me beyond my circumstances and beyond the things that have happened to me, and it just became too difficult. You know, if she has any positive qualities, like if she's loving, she's kind, if she's forgiving, if she has gentleness, people don't know because they see the circumstances that surround her life. They haven't got to know her. Instead, they see someone who's damaged. And they see someone who's been thrown away a lot. Somebody who's more like a worthless rag that you throw away. So it's easier for her to stick to a routine where she comes at noon and nobody's there. She'll bear the heat and she'll bear the loneliness to be there. Not because it's easier, but because it's less messy than coming in the morning and being rejected yet again. Coming in the mornings like getting on I-35, it may be the most direct route, but it's not the easiest. So she comes at noon. And then here comes this Jewish rabbi interrupting her routine. She's used to being there alone, and she's used to gathering her water by himself, and instead this guy shows up. Nobody's supposed to be here, and here he is. That's okay. I can imagine her thinking, at least he doesn't know me. He doesn't know my background. He doesn't know my story. Maybe I won't have to talk to him. He doesn't know my shame. And then he begins this conversation. And this conversation is the way Jesus often does, and especially the way that John seems to frame things, is he takes something physical and he turns it into something spiritual, thirst. He has this conversation with her about being thirsty and what that means. Everyone understands the idea of being thirsty. And really what you have Jesus saying to her is to go, you come here every day to get physical water, but you're looking for something more, and you leave parched every single day. Your soul is dying. And it desperately needs to be quenched. You have this thirst for someone to actually see you, to really see you, to know you, and to think you're valuable, and that you actually do have worth. You know, I'll tell you something that I think is pretty interesting is this idea of thirst for acceptance has become a huge part of the vernacular now in social media circles. Did you know that? It usually has to do with the way that they describe a picture, maybe a selfie or something that goes on social media that's usually explicit in such a way. Maybe it's a compromising position that's put out there for the sake of grabbing likes and for somebody to see it's called thirsty. 
And really what it is, is in the same way it's always been, is to go, does somebody care? Does anybody see me? Does anybody think I'm beautiful? Does anybody think I'm worth anything? And so what you have is young people compromising themselves of who they are in such a way now to put that out there, just hoping somebody will see them. It's the same thirst that all of us can have, and it's the same thirst that she had during that time. So now she's settled into this life, and she believes these lies, and she's alone, and she's been rejected, and she feels worthless and completely undesirable, but she has this faith because one of the things that she says, but I know Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to explain everything. In other words, when he comes, he's going to bring truth. And then all of these other things that I worry about and that I wonder about will be taken care of because there will be some truth, some truth. And I think what we do is we miss the beauty of this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman about truth and about what really matters because what happens is as she gets it, she decides to drop everything and she takes off and she runs to go tell other people. It's this change that happens to her. She's all of a sudden different because of her encounter with Jesus when he brought real truth to her. And it's not just because he gave a good little sermon to her and the talk about that, about living water and about true worship, or even because he told her things that she didn't, she didn't think he knew about her. But instead, it's because he's telling her these things. Is it true that what the Lord seeks is worshipers in truth and spirit? Yeah. But what's neat is he's like, I came to tell you this. I came so that you know what's true. I came so that you understand what's true in the spirit it's not the content of the gospel and good news that he's sharing with her. It's who he chose to bring it and share it with. He's saying, you need to understand, I have living water, and you can have it. You're worthy of it. Finally, your soul can be quenched, and you can be at peace. You'll be seen, and you'll be loved, and you'll be accepted, and you will never, ever be abandoned again because this water doesn't run out. He says, there's going to be true worshipers. And here's the thing. You can be one. You can be one of the true worshipers that God's looking for. There's nothing to prevent you from being that. It doesn't have anything to do with your qualifications. It's not about your ethnicity, and it's not about your gender, and it's not about your location. It's not about you at all. It's about me. You get to be a true worshiper because of me. Because what I'm going to do for you, all you have to do is have a heart for me. There is no sanctified special place for worship anymore. You will be the sanctified special place. I'll make you the temple. And then he says, I know everything there is to know about you. I think that's one of the reasons that he shares that. I know your story. I know that you've had five husbands. I know, with your life. I know everything that there is to know about you. And I still want you. I want you. I've come here for you. And I think that could be said for the overall cosmos, not just at that place. As Jesus comes and looks at us and says, you need to know, I've come here for you. I know, yes, I know what a hot mess you are. But you need to know, this is not about how messed up you are. This is about how loving I am. I've come here for you. And that's when routine of hers and comfort and the things that she normally does in coming in the middle of the day and making sure no one sees her or talks to her, it all flies out the window. As a matter of fact, the water that she came for, she just drops and she takes off and she runs away and she goes back to the town. And she goes to tell them, routine is blown out of the water. 
for Jesus and for her. And she runs to tell these people because the Lord has chosen to reveal who he is to somebody for the first time in public. And it is the most unlikely of people. Not her. Not in the middle of the day. Not in a Samaritan country. Not with this woman. None of this makes any sense. And so she drops and she runs, and she goes to share it with everyone that she knows. As a matter of fact, in John 4, as you continue on, verses 39 through 42, this is what it says. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more people believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior. It's not just that Jesus wants her and to save her from what she was. He's going, I want you because I've got a role for you. I've got a job for you, and you can do it, and you're the person for it. You're the one that I want for this. You're going to go from outcast to evangelist. I'm going to rewrite your story. I'm going to rewrite what you do. Your value is not so much now going to be seen in what other people think about you. It's now going to be seen in what I say about you. And I say you're part of my plan to redeem all things and to bring all things back under the lordship of our Heavenly Father. It's not about all of these things that people have said about you, and it's not about these lies that you had such a hard time for, had a hard time with. Instead, it's about what I say about you. I'm going to rewrite your name. I'm going to rewrite your purpose. We're going to take a minute, and uh, we're going to have a song. I'd like to invite you to just listen to this, if you would. Um, it's, it's called I'll Change Your Name. And I want us to reflect on it and to be able to think about the idea of what Christ has done for each one of us and the way that he's changed who we are. If you would, just take a minute. You can sing along if you'd like to, or you can just kind of meditate on this for a second. I will change your name. You shall no longer be close out here in just a bit, which is good because I'm, I'm about done. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm about cooked. But I want to share one other last thing with you if I can. <clears throat> these words that she says, these wonderful words, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? 
I want you to think about what a terrifying idea that would have been to her just a short time before that. For somebody who knew everything about me and everything I ever did, the idea that someone would be able to come and see directly through me like that would have been a horrifying idea for her. Now she says it with great joy. He sees me, everything about me, everything I've ever done, and he still wants me. That would have to be kind of the end of that message, right? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did and still wants me. What freedom she would have. What feelings, finally, of not being abandoned. He knows everything about me, and he wants me anyway. He recited back to me my biggest insecurities and my shames and everything that's happened to me, and he still says, I can be a true worshiper. What an amazing thing. At a time in our lives, I want you to know we have all been the woman at the well, and we have all been Nicodemus. Both of those strange conversations that he had, unusual in the ways that they are, but saying the same thing. What he saw in this woman, you need to know, was exactly what he saw in Nicodemus when he had that conversation with him. A broken person in need of salvation who can be part of his kingdom. I think it's interesting, both of them recognized that there was something special about him but had no idea who they were talking to. You remember Nicodemus came and he said, man, nobody could do the signs that you're doing unless he's from God. And then you have this woman who goes, you're telling me things about ourselves, so you must be a prophet. And then in both cases, Jesus goes, you need to know I'm the answer. I'm it. You're talking to the one. And Nicodemus, I know you've done some great things, and I know you're a leader and people look up to you. You need to be completely reborn of water and the Spirit. And to this woman that he comes and he meets, and he says, you need to know you need the living water that will change you in every way. Both about water, both about being changed, both about becoming the person that God says they are. Every one of us has been one of those. There's been times where we wanted to hide our shame, we wanted to hide our hurt, and then there's been other times where we've relied on our good deeds and our religion, and what Jesus says is, I know everything about you, and I want you. You are not damaged beyond repair. You have not been hurt, and you have not sinned beyond what I am able to redeem. And at the same time, he says, you have not done eternal good, and I can save you from that too. To say to the woman, you have not been eternally damaged, and to say to Nicodemus, you have not done eternally good. In both cases, what you need is me, and I want both of you, and I can have both of you be reborn and give you both this new name. We're going to take a minute, if we can. I'd like to ask if you would stand. We're going to give an opportunity for people to pray with one another. If you would please stand. We're going to sing a couple of songs. If you need to come and pray with uh, one of the elders or one of us, we would love to have you do that. I want to tell you, if you're at that spot where you go, man, I need to be reborn. What I need is Christ in my life. Come talk to one of the elders. Come find me. Come find somebody around. We would love to tell you about what it means to be baptized into Christ, to be raised as this new creation. At the same time, if you're somebody who's been relying too much on your good deeds, if you're in a spot of Nicodemus and you go, I need to repent I've been relying on the wrong things all this time. I've been believing some lies, no matter what they are, then we want to pray with you about that. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a couple of songs. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you love us. Lord, we thank you for uh, saving us in every way. Lord, we thank you for these conversations that we see 
your son having with people, that he would go out of his way to talk to somebody like Nicodemus, that he would find himself um, just where he needed to be to meet this woman at the well in the middle of the day, uh, speaking truth to her. And so, Lord, let us be people who speak truth. Let us find ways outside of our routine and outside of our norm where we can share the good news with other people. Let us be people who see your amazing work being done because we're able to step out and have conversations with people who desperately need to know who you are. And Lord, for those of us who sit in this room right now who have been hurt, who have been damaged in some way, we need feel no shame because we have not been damaged beyond your ability to repair. Lord, see our hearts as we worship you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.